If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. If we ever want to rebuild the morality of this country, we have to understand that the fact that we were fighting pure 24-carat evil, which we were, and the fact that we defeated it does not mean that we can simply turn and look the other way over any acts which we committed which were wrong in themselves. That was Peter Hitchens sharing his opinions on the Second World War. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Now, is there ever such a thing as a good war? Well, if there is, the Second World War seems like an obvious candidate, as it resulted in the crushing defeat of some of the 20th century's most brutal regimes. But of course, the reality is more complicated than that. And in his new book, The Phony Victory, the journalist and author Peter Hitchens has challenged what he sees as some of the most pervasive myths about the conflict, arguing that we need to rethink the motives and morality of the Allied side. I met up with Peter in our London offices a little while back, to find out more. When did you yourself first become aware that the kind of mainstream accepted narrative of the Second World War wasn't right? I think really uh, from my father who had fought in it and who was plainly discontented in some important way about the outcome and he would say, we won the war, or did we? And this passed a bit at the time, but it works on the mind. If, some of the, if the person you know best, who was actually quite deeply involved in it and risked his life in it, has doubts about it, then those doubts persist. 
Why do you believe this myth is so prevalent? Why, despite all the, the arguments you lay out in your book, do people still believe this myth? Well, it's partly because of the enormous power of, as Philip Pullman said, once upon a time is much more powerful than thou shalt not. Given that Christianity as a set of beliefs and precepts has almost completely collapsed in our midst, we need something else to believe in. And we need somewhere else to get our sources of goodness from, a place where we can read parables of how to behave and take examples from. And the war has, I think, performed that function for an awful lot of people. They looked at it, they think this was, this was a time of heroes. This was a time of greatness. There's another reason, which is, of course, the one which my father had noticed, which was that in many ways, after the war was over, we had many of the aspects of a defeated country. We were bankrupt, uh, we were battered, uh, we took quite a long time to recover, and we certainly had less power than we had by a long way before the war had taken place. And people, I think, felt a need, a very strong need, to justify that loss of prestige and wealth by saying, well, it may well be that we lost prestige and wealth, but we did something incredibly good. We stood up to Hitler, we stood alone. And so the story of the finest hour appealed to us greatly because it soothed the fact that we'd actually come out of it quite badly. And just to, um, to lay out some of the fundamentals, am I right to say that you don't think it was wrong for Britain to have fought Hitler or to fought no, Germany? I th but that starts the argument at the wrong point. I think probably eventually it was going to be necessary for Europe and probably the United States to do something about Germany under Hitler. And they ought to have done something about Germany when it was still a, when it was still a free country uh, before Hitler. And that was one of the major problems that had led to this. And I don't think there's any doubt that Germany was foolishly treated uh, the, uh, the Versailles talks. And I, right back to Maynard Keynes, people had warned against the consequences of that piece. But not enough was done to put it right. And it, 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 it fell, most unfortunately, to Adolf Hitler to be the person who eventually uh, forced the issue, which his, his democratic predecessors had not done. But that's all very complicated, European diplomacy and politics stretching right the way back to the 1920s and the Locarno Pact and all kinds of things which people have now completely forgotten. The difficulty with the 1939 war was that simply from our own objective point of view, it was more or less unhinged to declare war on the European continent's principal land power when we didn't have an army. It was also very mistaken to rely heavily, as we undoubtedly did, on the idea of blockading Germany, which had been a very successful weapon of war in 1914-18, in fact, 1914-19, because we didn't stop it till then, uh, when the Germans had just signed a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union, which made the blockade inoperable. And so we, we went to war under the worst possible practical conditions, and we promptly lost it. And in all military terms, we lost the war in May and June 1940, uh, but we were not occupied. Uh, so we were militarily and politically and diplomatically defeated, and we had no possibility on our own of recovering from that. Uh, but we were not occupied, so we, were, we, we remained free at that time. It still seems to me to be perfectly right uh, and indeed indispensable for Winston Churchill to have refused any peace talks. Any such talks would have been disastrous and would have been the utter end of this country. But we lived, and this is now forgotten because Pearl Harbor put an end to it, and Stalingrad put an end to it too. We lived between 1940 and, and really the um, end of 1941 in a state of some uh, fear. If Hitler had defeated the Soviet Union in, in 1941, 
if he'd taken Moscow and if he'd overthrown Stalin, then we would have had to face the same dilemma that the cabinet faced in the summer of 1940. We merely postponed it, but it was right to postpone it. It was right to hope for a better chance, but uh, that, that's a different issue. Why were we in that state? Why was the world's greatest empire, uh, the world's greatest sea power, one of the richest and most advanced countries in the world, prostrate at the feet of Germany in May 1940. It should never have been allowed to happen in the first place. And this is never examined. People always start the story at May 1940. And they, they, they pass over the fascinating period of the phony war and they never wonder, why was it a phony war? Why did we pledge to, we pledged to go to the aid of Poland? Why didn't we? Uh, why had we pledged to go to the aid of Poland if we'd had no intention of doing so? All this stuff is not examined. And when you do examine it, it's fascinating. The other thing is it completely demolishes the standard picture of Neville Chamberlain, the, 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 the futile peacenik, and of course, particularly of Lord Halifax, the futile peacenik. Halifax was, was the person who pretty much created the war, who pushed for the guarantee to Poland, and who, who wanted to create a tripwire which would lead to war in 1939, and succeeded in doing so. Then when he got the war he'd asked for, uh, I think it's pretty certain that he panicked uh, because it all went wrong. Fortunately, Churchill was there to stop him from, from actually engaging us in talks with Hitler. See what I mean, though. It's it's not a it's it's not a it's not a, a question that can be answered simply. No, not at all. And considering how badly the war was to go early on, and how unprepared Britain was, why then did did Britain go to war in 1939, having for years been prepared to whether you call it appeasement or whatever well, to I, avoid I, I, war? Appeasement, appeasement is not is, is not by any, any means necessarily a bad policy in, in diplomacy. Sometimes you have to do it. It's always a, a function of the balance of forces. And sometimes we do it in modern times in ways which I find reprehensible. I think the general attitude towards what Israel should do about the about the Arab world is is is, is definitely bad appeasement. I think Britain's own behaviour towards the IRA has been bad appeasement. Uh, but on other occasions, you simply have to do it. We appeased Stalin like anything in the, in the final years of the Second World War because we had to, otherwise we wouldn't have had an ally. And we, we couldn't have, have, have defeated Hitler on the European landmass. So we, we had to do it, and the appeasement is sometimes necessary. So appeasement in itself is not necessarily bad. Chamberlain, as the Labour Party ceaselessly pointed out while opposing it throughout the 1930s, was actually rearming the country very heavily. But he's rearming it for a different war from the one we fought. He was rearming it for a war in defense of the empire and a war ultimately in defense of the home islands, not for a European continental land war. And in fact, that, that the idea of building up an army for a European continental land war was specifically rejected in 1936 because Duff Cooper raised it and, and they said, we can't do that and defend the empire. So, so many things, these things are, are myths. The other thing is, is the, the actual process of the forming of the guarantee to Poland is one of the most fascinating things. And I, I found this, this book, which I go in on detail in the, in the book, about, which is actually somebody's PhD thesis, uh, published by the Oxford University Press and quite hard to find, in which it seems to me to be quite clear that Halifax and quite a lot of people high in the Foreign Office, who were not appeasers, as that is understood, wanted to reassert Britain's national greatness. Uh, that's why they did it. They thought we are losing our reputation as a great power in Europe and we can't afford to do it. It was actually, it was, it was, it was about status. And they thought this could be done easily by hiding effectively behind the enormous, but as it happens, uh, ineffectual military power of France and the Maginot Line and squeezing Germany by a blockade. And I don't think, I still don't think they really took in just what a blow to their 
scheme the Nazi Soviet pact was. And I go into, into, the, into that in some detail, but it is one of the most unexamined moments in the, in the, in the, the days leading up to the Second World War. The pact was signed uh, less than a fortnight before the invasion of Poland, and it changed everything. And it's, uh, it, it, it upset what was otherwise, I suppose, a reasonably rational policy. But the interesting thing was that when it happened, they didn't understand it well enough to realize that the policy which they'd been pursuing for ever since March 1939 was now completely out of date. And you make some interesting points also about Poland itself. The country Britain went to war to defend, yes. but yet you point out that it was not necessarily this um, freedom-loving, anti-racist country. Oh, I'm against sentimentality and policy. Uh, ultimately, policy, foreign policy is, is, is pursued for national interests. It's the Palmerstonian view of the country has no eternal friends. It only has eternal interests. And it has to look after them. And we sentimentalise war. We sentimentalise the First World War about Belgium. And we sentimentalised the Second World War about Poland. Now, Poland, I, mean, I, I, I actually, I, I love Poland. I have a great admiration for the Polish people. But I don't think, and I think they, they, they behave themselves with immense courage uh, once the terrible war was unleashed upon them. But they had a very bad government at the time, uh, which was both despotic and pretty openly anti-Semitic, in, certainly in the terms of, of, of the modern world. I think people would be shocked by the attitude which many of the Polish ruling class had towards the Jews in Poland, and which had also taken part as a jackal in the, in the dismantling of Czechoslovakia. They had, they had seized Teschen from Czechoslovakia with German encouragement, and the French were particularly furious about this. So it wasn't, we weren't sort of intervening uh, as it were, entirely on the side of good. The other thing about Poland was that it had been one of the first countries to conclude a treaty with Nazi Germany. And there had been many moments in the history of Poland when it had been perfectly thinkable that Poland might enter into, say, the anti-Comintern Pact or some other alliance with Germany uh, against the Soviet Union. So it, 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 it's, we mustn't sentimentalise this. The Poles fought like tigers and and many of their, particularly their pilots, but many others, the naval people, the intelligence people, came greatly to our aid. But we mustn't sentimentalise that part of the war, I think. And throughout the book, you take aim at some of the kind of cherished legends of the Second World War, and particularly the Battle of Britain. So how crucial was that to Britain's eventual victory or survival in the war? It was, the, the Battle of Britain was a propaganda conflict. It didn't, I think, I, with, put it like this, I, I, I can't come to a conclusion about this. I quote Richard North's interesting book, The Many, Not the Few, quite a lot, because it is interesting, and it's, it, it suggests that things are not entirely as they seem. I suspect it wasn't militarily as important as we, as we like to think. I don't think there was ever any serious preparation for an invasion of this country by the Germans. They never, for instance, constructed a single landing craft. The German army and the German navy could never agree uh, on what scale and type of invasion it should be. Uh, and at one stage, it seemed perfectly clear that they were planning for it purely for purposes of show. What Hitler wanted was for us to make peace. And it was a psychological war. And Churchill likewise viewed it as a psychological war. And the Battle of Britain was vitally important. I do not for one moment cast doubt upon the immense courage and skill of the pilots who fought in it. Uh, it was an epic battle, and it's, it's, it has an extremely powerful moral force even today of, of, of young men pretty much in, straight from school hurling themselves into terrible dangers of the defence of their homeland. I'm moved by it, but in military terms, it doesn't seem to me to have been as decisive as we like to think. And what's more, although the, the formal victory in it is supposed to take place in September, the Royal Air Force was not able to defend our skies, and it was from that point onwards that the Germans were able and continue to be able to bomb uh, major British cities 
uh, especially by night, which the RAF was very bad at defending against. So the idea that there was a decisive battle in the air, which we won and, and, and defeated the, the Germans in, in the air is not wholly true. And the idea that if the Battle of Britain had gone the other way, there would have been an invasion is also, I think, hard to prove, to put it mildly. Uh, I think that I think what Hitler wanted was a collapse in morale in this country, and he could easily have got one if we'd had a different leadership. And there were many other uh, the, the many other reasons why morale was in peril. As I go into the, the actually rather feeble efforts at civil defence which were being made, the ridiculous refusal in London to allow people to use the uh, the underground for shelters until quite late into the bombing, and the very active I have to say communist propaganda when the communists were more or less in alliance with Hitler. Uh, against the war that was going on at the time. We were in peril in terms, in terms of propaganda at that time. And uh, again, if it hadn't been for Winston Churchill, we might have succumbed to it. And what Hitler was doing was, was, was trying to destroy British morale rather, I think, than trying to, uh, than trying to prepare the way for, for a seaboard invasion, which whoever does it under any circumstances is a fantastically risky enterprise. And almost no general ever wants to do it if he can possibly find another way of getting his objective. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Another aspect of the war, which again is celebrated today, is a special relationship between. Britain and America, but am I right to say that you don't believe we should necessarily venerate that in the way it has well, been? I don't think there is a special relationship. If there is a special relationship between Britain and the United States, it's a specially bad relationship. Uh, there's an interesting book just been published called, I think, The Eagle and the Lion, which goes into the many, many clashes between Britain and the United States, between independence and, uh, and really the 1930s. And fundamentally, relations were very bad because we'd, uh, we'd welched on our debt to the United States uh, in, in the early 1930s. We still haven't paid it. 
Uh, we owe them an enormous amount, I think 64 billions in, in, in modern value. We, we just said we're not paying it, we're not, we're not paying any interest on it. That's that. It's an extraordinarily bad foundation for good relations. There was a lot of suspicion of and hostility towards Britain in the United States. A lot of people felt that we'd inveigled them into the First World War and they weren't being fooled by that again. And this, this wasn't just pro-Nazis and people that included people like, uh, like Alex Hemingway and Kingman Brewster, who, who, who later became American ambassador to Britain, serious people high in, in American politics and public life, were just hostile to us, and with perfectly good reason. I mean, there is no special reason why the United States should, uh, should necessarily automatically come to our, our aid. They're, they're a foreign country with different interests. And when the, the whole process of Lend-Lease eventually began, and that was quite a near-run thing, uh, when that began, uh, it was quite mean, and a lot was demanded in return. Uh, particularly, the, this wasn't technically part of Lend-Lease, but it's connected with it. The Destroyers for Basis deal was very, very hard bargain on the American side. They got things in return for, for a collection of pretty decrepit warships, which I think spent most of their time in the workshop after we got them. And uh, we actually had handover real territory to the United States in return for that. And Lend-Lease took a very long time to get going. The first shipments of it were, were little more than powdered milk. And when it did get going, it was, it was hugely restricted to make sure that it was only used so that we could fight the war and not so that we could recover economically. And it was preceded by the most extraordinary sort of bankruptcy hearing where we had to pretty much establish to the Americans we had no money left. Uh, Morgenthau actually had to go to the Senate and say, look, the British haven't got any money, and if we don't give them help, they'll just have to stop fighting. And it was at that point that the Senate agreed to to, to go for Lendies, but not before. And we had to ship huge piles of negotiable securities and almost all the gold in our reserves over to, first of all, to Canada and then to the United States in, in convoys, the existence of which is still largely unknown to the British people, shockingly. And most of it never came back. Uh, so it wasn't it wasn't done in a kind of spirit of brotherly friendship. And there's also the question raised, what would have happened in 1941 if Hitler had not declared war on, on the United States? And people such as John Kenneth Galbraith, who was actually working in Washington at the time, furiously hoped that the United States would come in on Britain's side in Europe, was in some doubt as to whether Roosevelt would do so. And say Hitler short-circuited the whole thing by declaring war on the USA, but would the United States ever have declared war on Germany? We don't know. It's still an open question. The central figure in Britain's wartime myth or wartime story is Winston Churchill. Do you feel that his reputation is accurate compared to his actual wartime performance? I think Winston Churchill was an extraordinary person, and I think he, that he, he, was, he was a great man by anybody's standards in any age. Uh, and I particularly admire his his use of the English language and his literary skill and, and the enormous contribution he made to preventing a negotiation in 1940. But he, that doesn't mean he's the sort of saint. He's not above criticism. And the problem with making people into heroes is that you disarm your rational mind and you stop looking at them properly critically. I think there are many things in which Winston Churchill is open to considerable criticism, and I go into the details of how his obsession uh, with the Mediterranean and the Middle East uh, almost certainly cost us Singapore. It certainly made it it's certain that we would lose Singapore. I think there could have been a much more successful attempt to combat the Japanese in Singapore and, and go into that in some details. And I think that his episodes, such as the, the, the intervention in Greece and Crete, were also gravely foolish. And I think his dispatch 
of Prince of Wales and Repulse. And coming from a naval family, I feel this quite strongly, is dispatch of these two great ships to what was pretty much certain doom is something which should be definitely uh, set against him. And we also have to remember that in the later part of the war, this great opponent of, of, of supposed appeasement by Neville Chamberlain was compelled by circumstances to appease Stalin. Uh, and if we are to look rationally and educationally at the past, we, we have to remove the sort of eye patch that the history places over at least one eye and look at it properly. So it, wasn't, it wasn't as heroic as all that. The time when we needed to believe wholly in this myth has passed. It's so long ago that the, the last people who fought in this war are now very, very old indeed. It's moving as we speak into the area of history. And I think the time has necessarily come to start treating it more dispassionately, especially because, and this is the fundamental reason why I wrote it, especially because of the incessant use of the Second World War as a kind of template for good wars, for wars of choice. Uh, we're always told, uh, whether it be Saddam Hussein or for goodness sake, General Noriega, or Vietnam or Korea, we're always told that the other side is Hitler. We're always told that not doing anything about it is appeasement. Uh, we're always told that those who are skeptical about the war are, are modern day versions of Neville Chamberlain. And, and we're also told, I think, very misleadingly, that the war was, was, we're not so much told as it's assumed, and I quote the Prince of Wales in this, this extraordinary thought for the day, it's assumed that the war was fought for humanitarian reasons, uh, particularly to, to save the Jews of Europe. Well, if it was fought to save the Jews of Europe, it was a pretty bad failure. I don't personally believe that it was. I think that, that quite a lot of Jews survived because we eventually did win the war, but that's not why we were fighting it. In fact, I think there's quite strong evidence that we weren't fighting it for that reason. Uh, points at which we ignored opportunities which, which might have saved quite a, a, a lot more Jewish lives than we did save. And I think we should stop mythologizing. I think the current mess that we're in in Syria, the mess that we got into in Libya, the mess that we got into, into in Iraq, and quite possibly the mess we're going to get ourselves into with Russia in, in Eastern Europe, will be partly because of this delusion. That's that the, the war is good, or war can be good, and that we are once again being Churchillians when we're not. We're just in many cases often being ignorant and foolish. And the other thing I have to stress in all this, in all this is the absolute horror of the implementation of the Potsdam Agreement and the forgotten uh, but now at last addressed in an excellent book uh, called Orderly and Humane. The appalling acts visited on entirely innocent women and children of, of German extraction in Central Europe uh, in a vast project of ethnic cleansing which took place after the war, which still remains, it seems to me, a shocking thing. And then on top of that, a thing which, which grieves me greatly, our continued refusal to acknowledge that there might have been anything wrong in deliberately bombing German civilians. Yeah, and I, I found one of the most powerful chapters in the book was the one that addressed the bombing war. Why do you feel that was particularly abhorrent and were there any justifications for what was done? Well, I think, look... Um, I, I examine, I think, all the justifications for it. And I think many of the justifications would be perfectly valid if what we had done is what the Americans eventually did, pretty much, which is to bomb by day under heavy fighter escort uh, actual targets. It's some of the late American bombing 
particularly of fuel producing factories and environments factories, was incredibly effective and genuinely damaged the German war effort. All of it, if it had been done systematically to, to, to begin with in, in that fashion, would have done as the bombing of civilians did, drawn away artillery and fighter protection from the Eastern Front. Uh, there was never any case to be made that, that bombing German civilians protected us from invasion because it didn't, the timing is simply wrong. By the time we really got the, our bombing campaign underway, Stalingrad had already happened and there was no, there's no serious danger that Hitler would win the war by then. Uh, the other problem is, and leaving all those things behind, and I do examine them in some detail because I've had this argument with a lot of people. The other thing is this, I think the moral damage done when a country starts to defend the indefensible to itself goes very deep. And what's more, I think we just simply aren't able to examine it. In fact, I give a very small quotation from Max Hastings' book on, on, on Bomber Command about a description of what actually happened in the militarily insignificant city of Darmstadt when we bombed it, which is a chamber of horrors. Most people in Britain to this day are simply unaware of what happened in the, in the cities that we bombed and what happened to civilians in those cities that we bombed. They, they aren't aware of it because I think, by and large, they closed the door and they don't want to look behind it. And I don't blame them. I did the same thing for a long time myself, but I think it's time. So, I mean, I'm not a military historian. But nor, am, nor am I. <laughs> but I'd be interested to know how you think historians of the Second World War will react to your book and whether this although it obviously falls outside the mainstream of public opinion, how would it sit amongst historical opinion? Well, I have to wait for them to say. I mean, I hope that my sources are, are good and I hope that my points are accurate. I'm obviously, if, if serious historians come and say that I've got something wrong, then I'll, I'll have to own up to it. I, th I think I've done what I can to keep it within the bounds of, of truth. I've, I've, I've certainly attempted to do so and, and would hope so. I'm not really engaging with historians. I'm engaging with modern politicians. Uh, I'm engaging with a lot of modern journalists and opinion makers. Uh, I'm engaging with people like, like the Prince of Wales, who, who continue to use the Second World War as a moral template. I'm saying, please stop doing this. It leads to bad things. Re-examine it. And also, I think if, you, if we ever want to rebuild the morality of this country, we have to understand that the fact that we were fighting pure 24-carat evil, which we were, and the fact that we defeated it does not mean that we can simply turn and look the other way over any acts which we committed which were, which were wrong in themselves. The fact that we defeated evil does not mean that we can excuse our own wrongdoing. And that's a point very strongly made in Orderly and Humane, by the way, the book about the Potsdam Agreement, which I repeat with strong approval, the arguments which, which are made in that book about how appalling beyond doubt were the actions of, of, of the Hitler state. But that can never, ever, not for a second, be an excuse for appalling actions undertaken by our inside. And we have to learn to deal with that. I, I'm not a pacifist. I have seen the edges of war, and I hate it. I'm not a pacifist. I can see that sometimes it's necessary, it's very often necessary to prepare for war. But I think we've become much too relaxed about it and much too willing to license it and much too willing to license policies which would lead to it. I, fundamentally, I'm not aiming at historians. I'm, I'm, it, is a, it is a polemic with some facts in it. Uh, but I'm not a historian, I'm a scribbler, and I don't claim to be anything other than that. I would, I would, I would like, as I always seek to do when I write these things, I just to like to make people think a bit more about things which they've assumed to be the case, but which in my view are not. 
I don't know if you'd agree, is it fair to say that you're widely regarded as someone on the right of the political spectrum? On a very crude spectrum. I mean, I'm, I'm in favour of nationalisation of the railways. I've been against most of the recent wars. I'm in economic policy a social democrat. But sure, I mean, in terms of, I mean, in moral and cultural terms, I am undoubtedly a conservative. I wonder whether you feel that your natural constituency or the people like to, who generally read you, how much they would support the argument in this book? I don't know. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to get people to support me. I know that a lot of people who like what I write don't like everything that I write. Uh, I expect that some people who have previously thought highly of me will cease to think highly of me when they read this. It's just, but as far as I'm concerned, this is the truth in clear English. And if anybody doesn't like that, then that's their problem, not mine. I can't do anything about that. I'm not trying to, to carry favor or win support among people by pretending to be something other than what I am, or, or somebody who thinks something other than what I actually think. So what do you think needs to happen for the British public to have, in your view, a more balanced understanding of a Second World War? I don't know. I know we could start by discussing it. We could start, they could start by reading my book and, uh, with an open mind and seeing, and seeing the point that I'm making. What I very much fear is, and I do fear this, is that, because remember, the First World War was viewed with reverence as the war, the Great War for Civilization, it was called, and the War to End War, uh, a title which it lost absolutely, in 1939. Uh, do we have to have another major conflict before people realise that the Second World War wasn't uh, a wasn't the huge moral reawakening that it's portrayed as? I hope not. Hence, let's have the argument now rather than wait for that to happen. That was Peter Hitchens. The Phony Victory, The World War II Illusion, is out now in the UK, published by IB Taurus. In the US, it will be released in November from the same publisher. And you may well have your own thoughts on the arguments Peter has advanced here. If so, please do share them with us on the History Extra Twitter and Facebook accounts. And that is about it for today. But we will be returning on Monday, when Neil Oliver will be chatting about his new book on the places that made Britain. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. Thank you.